can be seated. Good morning. It's good to have you here today. If you have your Bibles, I'll ask you to go ahead and turn over to Mark chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses uh, 13 through 34 uh, in our time together today. That's Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 34. Oh, uh, do we have junior church? Yeah, so junior church, um, you are dismissed, those that are involved in junior church at this time. So, um, unless you're in the dark, um, you certainly know the word gotcha questions, don't you? We live in a world where um, people are often trying to come up with just that right question that you're not going to have the answer for. And so we talk about these gotcha moments which um, expose people normally for the purpose of embarrassment and ridicule. And we call them gotcha questions. I went online this week and I just typed in gotcha questions. Wow. A lot of stuff comes up. You know, and so they have reporters that want to ask just that right question, and that politician is going to just be embarrassed. And I, I would say that strategy, which we see in our day, is not new to our day. Because when you come to the text we're looking at today, you find a whole series of gotcha questions. Um, just to kind of get our feet wet in, in the passage, you remember, this is the final week of Christ's uh, earthly life before, before he dies, dies. And as he comes in, one of the first things he does is he cleanses the temple. Like, that is not the way to win friends and influence people with the religious establishment. And so he cleanses the temple, and then he's teaching the people, and the religious leaders are in a panic. And one of the things they do is they come up to him and they say, who gives you the authority to do what you're doing? They're trying to pressure him. And Jesus responds back with a question that they're afraid to answer. And then he moves right into a parable which basically says, you guys have been unfaithful to God and he's going to turn away from you. And they're regrouping. And they get together in little groups. And the, the Pharisees and the Herodians, who aren't necessarily the best of friends, they see things very differently. Pharisees are much more strict with the law and the Herodians. They want to have all kinds of political influence and ties with because they like Herod and, 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 and that whole movement. So they kind of group together and they say, we got a gotcha question. And the Sadducees are going to come over here and they're going to say, well, if that doesn't go so well, we got a gotcha question. And then one of the scribes is going to come, and he's going to be a little bit more suave about it and careful, but he's got a gotcha question. And they're convinced that with these gotcha questions coming at Jesus, they're going to expose him as being a bumbling, would-be Messiah. And what they're going to find is his response is going to get them at the end of the day. But here's what I want you to watch as we work through this. So they're trying to do a gotcha for Christ, and Christ's answer really gets them. In the midst of all that, Jesus is going to teach us some very important truths about how to live life. And what it means as Christ's followers to move through this life in a way that honors him with all of the obstacles and challenges that there are. In their day... And in our day. So, the first gotcha question comes in verses 13 to 17. So again, the Pharisees and the Herodians, the one is much more of a political group. The other group is much more of a conservative uh, religious group. They sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him In a statement. You see, it's a gotcha, isn't it? And they came and they said to him, and and, and, you know, even by the way they opened this whole thing up, they are trying to set him up, even with the question. Look how they're buttering him up on this thing. This is crazy. Teacher, 
So they address him as teacher, right? Okay. Teacher, the one who has content, you know. Teacher, we know that you are truthful and that you defer to no one. For you are not partial to any, but you teach the way of God in truth. Do you see what they're doing? Hey, teacher, all you care about is what God says. And you're about giving the truth. And you are not pressured by people. So we're going to ask you a question that's going to put you up against the wall. And you better answer it correctly or else we're going to call you a hypocrite. Do you see what they're doing? I mean, it is, it's not even subtle. But it is somewhat subtle. And here's their question. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Now, living in the American culture where we pay taxes on almost everything, you know, there's sales taxes and income taxes and state taxes and local taxes, tax, 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 tax. You might read that and think like, no biggie. Not so in their day. So this takes place around 30 AD, okay? Back in AD 6, Judea, which is where Jerusalem would be, it's the area where Jerusalem is, um, that was taken away from one of Herod's sons, and they put a Roman governor there in its place, who was actually responsible to a larger governor from Syria, who we call a legate. So it was kind of connected all together. And one of the things that was instituted at that point is what's called the poll tax, which basically means there's a denarius that every person has to pay each year in taxes. We created such a tension that a guy by the name of Judas Galilee, we know this from, from one of the ancient writers, Josephus, he tells us that this Judas Galilee came up and he created a rebellion with all kinds of people that said, listen, there's two options. You're either under Caesar or you're under God. And we're going to be under God and we are not paying that tax and we are going to turn back these Romans any way we can. And that whole rebellion just fomented, fomented, fomented. It would rise and wax and wane through the years and ultimately in AD 66 it came to full fruition and we ultimately end up with the destruction of the temple in AD 70. But this poll tax was a really sensitive issue. It's very likely they didn't actually have it in Galilee, which is where Jesus was from. So here's Jesus coming into Jerusalem, kind of like the Washington, D.C. of their day, you know. And he doesn't know, you know, well, of course he knows he's Jesus, but he's not intricately involved in all these things. And they're thinking the Herodians get together and they say, hey, let's pick up on the poll tax thing. And let's ask him, is it right to pay that poll tax to Caesar? If he says, no, you shouldn't pay it, then the Herodians can run to the officials, the Roman officials, and say, he doesn't want to pay the taxes. He's a rebel. You should do something. If he says, yeah, pay the tax, then we'll tell the people that don't like paying the taxes what kind of Messiah is that? And it was a catch-22. There was no way out of this one. Because you're either supporting Caesar or you're supporting God. So Jesus, teacher, who teaches all truth, who doesn't care what people think, is it lawful to pay the poll tax? Do you see the setup? What does Jesus do? I love it. Jesus, oh, he's good. He's good. Look at what he does in response. Verse 15. But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. Apparently, Jesus didn't have this denarius in his belonging. There was other, there was different denariuses. But he says, okay, you people who are so concerned about all these things. You, you know, we sometimes talk about the commercial, what's in your pocket? Oh, here it is. Jesus is saying, what's in your pocket? 
Somebody pulls out a silver denarius. It would have looked like this. And it, it's a, it, it, this, this is what you would have paid your poll tax with. Do you notice whose inscription is on it? Whose image and things are said about him? It literally says, Tiberius Caesar, who was then the emperor, son of the divine Augustus, and then it says Augustus, which probably means Augustus, and I'm also an Augustus, you know, Augustus himself. And on the obverse side of the coin, it says high priest. So Jesus says, can I see the coin in your pocket? Those of you that are deeply concerned of should we pay the poll tax or shouldn't we pay the poll tax? The fact that you've got this denarius and you call yourself a committed Jew shows that you've got the image of the Caesar and on a coin that you're carrying around that you're already paying to Caesar. Do you see how he's exposing their hypocrisy? It's brilliant, isn't it? So Jesus says to them, they brought one to him. I, I wonder if it was kind of sheepishly, you know, like, oh, brother, oh, nuts, you know, whatever, I don't know, whatever. Um, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, <clears throat> Um, that would be uh, that would be Caesar. And Jesus said to them, and here's his response: Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And he doesn't stop there, does he? Because that would have been insufficient. And to God, the things that are God's. Let me tell you what he's not saying. He's not saying. Look, there's two realms in this world. There's the Caesar realm, and then there's the God realm. So, do Caesar stuff, and do God stuff. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, there's one world, and it's all under the authority of God. Judas the Galilean was right on that. However, part of understanding the way God has designed the world around us is to recognize that a subset within that is that we're responsible to governing authorities. It's not this or that. It's this within that. Do you see? And look at their response. And they were all, my text says, my, they were amazed at him. But it's a strong word for amazed. You could say they were utterly amazed at him. And so they've turned in the coin. They've been exposed for the fact that they're just hypocrites themselves. And Jesus gives a response that says, these are new, not two separate realms. It's a realm within a realm. And he will flesh this out. His disciple Peter will flesh this out for us. And the Apostle Paul will flesh this out for us, won't they? So when Jesus stands before Pilate, and Pilate says, um, what's going on here? Are you a king then? And, and, and Jesus says, I am. But my kingdom is not of this world. There is a much larger kingdom of which what you do, Pilate, is merely a permitted subset that God has designed in this world for now. And later, later Pilate will say, well, you know, I have authority to let you go or to crucify you. I have all kinds of authority. And Jesus says, you don't have any authority, really. Not really. The authority is much bigger than yours. Do you see what Jesus is doing? There's this large realm. It's God. And there's this subset called Caesar. So for those that thought that Caesar and the Roman government was everything, baloney. For those that said there was no place for, Roman, for, for governing authorities, baloney. Do you see? It is a brilliant response from Christ. And so, 
What does Jesus want to tell us? Out of allegiance to God's ownership of all, that's the big circle. Do you see that? Be responsible stewards under the God-ordained institution of governing authorities. And in answering that question, he brings the perfect blend to the tensions we find in our day. Is it possible for me to make politics everything? Is it? You look at what's happened in the last couple of years, and you're going like, I mean... You've been unhappy at some point. You either were unhappy or you are unhappy. And let me tell you something. In the future, you will be unhappy. I mean, it's, just, I mean, it's, it's part of the way things move and work. And it, and it doesn't mean we have no vested interest there. We do. But it is a subset of a greater framework in which God is king of all. And so Paul can step into this arena just like Peter will step into this arena. And Peter will say on the one hand, in 1 Peter chapter 2, you should honor the king. You should obey and submit to your authorities within the governing arena as much as obedience to Christ will allow. And at the point where somebody says, you can't do what God calls you to do in this world, you kindly but certainly continue to honor Christ regardless because there's a larger realm. And that's exactly how Peter lives his life. When Peter says, you will no longer talk about Christ, Peter says, yes, I will. All through the scripture, that's the way it works. You put Daniel into Babylon, he will be as respectful to the governing authorities as possible. But at the point at which somebody says, you will not pray this way, you will not do that, I can't, I can't listen. Because there's a larger authority, it's God's, of which yours is a vested subsection that God has designed for this world. And that's the tension we live in. Peter recognizes it. Paul realizes it. And in Romans 13, Paul will talk about paying taxes to the governing. I mean, who likes paying taxes? Folks, we got about a month, right? April 15th is coming. I mean, does anybody here say, look, I just can't wait to pay taxes. I love, no, I mean, what are you, you're, you're a masochist if that's the way you feel. No, no, none of us feel that way. It's not the point. The point is, God has ordained this sphere, and as much as obedience to Christ will allow, we need to be submissive in that framework. And we pay taxes, and we honor people, and we honor the governing authorities. Honestly, it's not right to make terrible jokes about whoever is president. When it was Donald Trump, if you're a Democrat, you love them, the jokes. Now that it's Joe Biden and you're Republican, you love those jokes. We shouldn't love either one. Because God has placed those people in those positions. And we are called to honor and to pay taxes to those systems. That's true of all kinds of God-ordained institutions. Family, church, places of work. In each one of them, Doug Finkbeiner is called to step in and say, what, would, what does it mean before God, who is authoritative over all of this, what does it mean for me to live in a way that I'm a good steward of what God calls me to do in that sphere? So I do it one way in the government. In my home, I'm called to lead. As the man in the home. I'm, that's, that's what I'm called to. I don't always have to like that. That's not the point. God, what's it mean for me to steward there? What's it mean to love my wife regardless? She's not very, she's not always loving. That's not the point. I'm called to be a steward there in my home. I'm called to be a steward 
there in, 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 in the governmental authority that God has established. I'm called to be a church member that is active or a, a pastor who is leading in a way that stewards the arena that God has given us under his larger authority. Does that make sense? All the way through the New Testament, that's the way it worked. And that's what I love about this gotcha question. They thought they were going to take Christ and put him on the sideline because he wouldn't have an answer. Jesus reinforces how we're to live in this world. So I have to thank those Herodians and Pharisees at the end of the day. Because they're going like, ha ha. And Jesus is going, no, you're wrong. And I'm going to teach my people how to live as I put you in your place. And that's exactly what happens in the text. Well, they're kind of taken back, you know. What do we do? And the Sadducees are gathering together. And um, they're they're also very politically driven. They just want everything to just kind of stay status quo. Because the Sadducees were very, very, very influential in what we call the Sanhedrin, kind of the ruling body for the Jews. And they tended to be very wealthy and rich. They just kind of want to keep status quo, you know. And so they're regrouping and they're thinking, we got it. We got to embarrass this guy. We need a gotcha question. Got it. We got it. Because one of the things you know about the Sadducees, among other things, is they don't believe in a resurrection. They believed that when you die, that's it. There's no soul in the afterlife, kind of just disembodied, wandering around. Neither is there a resurrection of the body. There's nothing. When you die, life's over. Which is why for them, they want to keep status quo so it's enjoyable, as enjoyable as it can be for them now. That's what they want. So they're thinking, okay, we know the Pharisees don't agree with us on the resurrection. Pharisees believe in the resurrection. We don't. But that's not the point. We want to get Christ. So we're going to tell a story and then ask him a question and it is going to back him against the wall and he's going to be so embarrassed. He's not going to know what to do and the people aren't going to listen to him. Here we go. All right, that's how they're thinking. So look what they do. There in verse 18. And some Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection came to him and began questioning him saying, teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no children, his brother should take the wife and raise up offspring to his brother. So, the Sadducees were deeply committed to what we call the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, what we call the Pentateuch. And, and, and so they're going to find their doctrine and teaching from there. They have real problems with other stuff after that. But that one, man, they're really certain about. So they go back to Deuteronomy. And they say, you know, in, 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 in Deuteronomy, there's a law. And the way it would work is if, um, yeah, let's see. I'm going to use Tim as an illustration here. Suppose uh, Tim and I are brothers. Well, I need some more brothers. Oh, let me grab Joe. Joe, you're going to be one of my brothers too. And uh, I don't know who else. Tim, we'll make Tim a brother. I, whatever. Dave, we're going to make Dave a brother. Okay, whatever. So I marry somebody and um, I die pretty quick. Um, but we don't have any children. Deuteronomy would say, it was called the leveret marriage, that the next oldest, so that would be Tim. Let's just say Tim. Tim now will be responsible to marry my wife, because I'm dead. And when that kid comes, that kid would be in my name. So he's going to continue my name. And then he can have other kids for him. Okay, that's the way it works. But the problem is, Tim marries her. I, I mean, so, I mean, that's how elaborate marriage works, right? And if Tim dies and we, there's still no kids, then you go to the next brother, right? It just kind of works. So this is the scenario they come up with. And we we'll, we'll, can name a couple people here, but look what he says. So that's what Deuteronomy says. Here's their story. You've all read, you remember the old story, seven, seven brides for seven brothers? Remember that? Well, this would be seven, I'm sorry, this would be one bride for seven brothers. Okay, so it's a little bit different, but here it goes. So there were seven brothers. And the first took a wife, Doug took a wife, and I died, leaving no offspring. 
And the second one, Tim took her, and Tim died, leaving behind no offspring. And Tim Huff did the same thing, and the third likewise. And so all seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm reading that story, and I'm about the fourth brother, I'm thinking like, I don't know about this one. You know, it makes me a little bit nervous. Well, when do you? But, but bing, man, we go through Tim and Tim and, and, and Dave and, and we, just, we get Carmelo, whatever. I just grab who I and grab. And just, we go through all these people. And all seven brothers marry this woman, no children with anyone. And the guys keep dying and finally she dies. Okay, so that's their story. And they think like, we, we have got him on this one. So look what they say. In the resurrection, here's the gotcha question, verse 23. When they rise again, can you see them looking at each other? So in the resurrection, when they rise again, okay, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had her as wife. So Jesus, you're like the Pharisees, you believe in the resurrection. Here's our story. And my guess is the Sadducees probably used a story like this quite a bit. You know, it was probably their gotcha question they used a lot. So they're going to give it to him. So what do you think about that one? You're going to promote polygamy for all eternity? Something like that. Look at Jesus' response. I love it. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are mistaken that you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God. Wow. <laughs> Isn't that something? Uh, you guys have two basic problems with your question. You don't know the Bible. Even the Pentateuch, which you say is the main, the, the, the main scripture for you. And you have no idea about the transforming power of God who is created and can recreate and can transform as he sees fit. About that point, they're probably thinking like, we're in a heap of trouble. So Jesus makes a statement, then he's going to go ahead and explain it in reverse order. Look at what he says. Verse 25. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, I don't think Jesus there is saying that, that, that people are going to become sexless. I don't think that's the point. I think what he's saying is, in heaven, there's immortality. There's this transformative glory. And what you don't realize is, you live in a world right now where people die. And therefore, there's procreation becomes so important is because one generation dies and then there's another generation, there's another generation, there's another generation. In eternity, those who know Christ will never die. There will be no need for marriages in heaven because it's a different kind of existence. And God is going to go so transform us that marriage, think about this, folks. He's already talked about the institution of governing authorities. Do you know one day, as Revelation tells us, the kingdoms of this world become what? The kingdoms of our God. It all gets swept up into this greater kingdom of God. And do you know my marriage with Sherry? I love Sherry. She's not here today. She's in Florida visiting her mother, but, but whatever. So we're texting quite a bit. But I, I love Sherry. I love marriage. I hope we have 50, 60 years married together before one of us dies. And I hope I die first. You know how that goes. Um, but you know in heaven, our marriage, which now is supposed to be a picture between Christ and the church, is going to be swept up into all of us who know Christ are the bride of Christ and we are swept up in our relationship with the ultimate groom, Jesus Christ. And marriage, which becomes this beautiful experience and object lesson and picture now, will no longer be necessary in eternity. You know what I tell singles? 
people who live their lives and have chosen not to get married for a whole host of reasons. They're not going to be, they're not second class citizens in the church now. They shouldn't be, 1 Corinthians 7. And they certainly won't be in eternity. Because it all gets swept up into the fact that Christ is all in all. Do you see? And he's talking to people that are saying, so do you think there's going to be polygamy in the afterlife? Because that's what you have to believe if you believe in the resurrection. Jesus says, you don't understand the power of God. You don't understand the fact that God can transform and take all of this and, 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 and make it glorious and wonderful and sinless and perfect and Christ-focused for all eternity. And you don't get any of that. About that time, they're probably going like, ooh, ooh, you know, they're a little bit nervous. And, but Jesus says, okay, let's talk about the scripture. You believe in the scripture. You only believe in the Pentateuch. Let me give you a passage from the Pentateuch. That's what he does. Verse 26, but regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses? See that little jab? Don't you guys know? Like, don't you even know your own Bible? Yeah. In the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him and said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living you are greatly mistaken. You individuals that try to come and give me a gotcha question, believing there's no resurrection, you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. Because the God who appeared to Moses long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were dead will tell Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I made a covenantal promise with them and I am still in relationship with them. And you're not going to change that. So what do we learn? Since God is the author of eternity, we need to live in light of the certainty of the resurrection. Sadducees, man, they're just living for the here and now. And Jesus says, my people, and you read through 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul just unpacks the resurrection and he gets to the end. He says, therefore, my dearly beloved... You can become, you can stand immovable and abound in the work of God, knowing that everything you do is not in vain. Because there is an eternity where God will transform us and we will be lost in the glory and wonder of Christ. Folks, I don't even know what that's going to be like, but I can't wait. It's going to be a totally different dimension. Nobody's going to be disappointed No one's going to wonder, bummer, I think I'm missing something. No way. No one's going to be bored. I used to worry as a kid that I was going to be bored when I got to heaven. Like, how many praise songs can you sing? You know? No. We are going to be swept up into the wonder of who Christ is. And we'll never look back. We had a funeral service yesterday. As Tim was saying. And um, the hope we have, folks is that because Christ is risen and because we know him, we too will rise again, reunited to our bodies, and live with him for all eternity. That's that's what we believe. So got your questions coming along, people saying, yeah, so should you pay poll taxes? And Jesus pulls back and tells them the wonder of a God who owns everything. He says, you live out your stewardship in light of who I am. Somebody else says, well, polygamy in the afterlife? Jesus says, the resurrection is true. God has said it. And he will transform us. And you guys don't even understand it. They're not doing so well, are they? When I was a kid, I used to watch the, uh, you know, the tag team um, um, wrestling stuff. It was all fake. I don't know. Do they still do that now? Do, do they still have fake wrestling? I, I, I mean, it's been years. But I used to love to watch the. I, I, I'm just telling you, I, I liked watching that stuff as a teenager. You know, and you'd have all these guys, Hulk Hogan and all these guys coming out and doing their stuff. But um, I used to, I always used to be kind of interested with the tag team wrestling. 
You know, or one guy would come and fight a couple people, and then when he wears off, he goes and he tags his partner, and he comes up and picks up. When I, when I look at this passage in the temple, I, I kind of feel like here's Jesus in the corner all by himself. And he steps out to the middle. Pharisees and the Rodians come up. By the time they're done, they're just kind of slithering back to their corner. Yeah, and then the Sadducees come up, and I gotcha, and they slither back too. So what we need is a scribe. I mean somebody who's an expert with the scripture. And that, that's who comes up next. Matthew's gospel will tell us that this man comes forward to test Jesus. Matthew, uh, Mark doesn't emphasize that part of it, but I think it's subtly indicated by some things in the text itself. But this guy's not quite as antagonistic as the others. But... He's going to place a gotcha question before Jesus too because scribes think an awful lot about, so what's the foremost command that you should be abiding, living by? Is it about doing sacrifices? Is it about doing this? What what is it? And so he comes up and look at what he says. Verse 28. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing that he had answered them well, he asked him, What commandment is the foremost of all? So maybe this scribe was a Pharisee and he kind of liked the way Jesus was handling the Sadducees because he didn't agree with the Sadducees either, you know. And he says, okay, I got a question. I'm an expert, so I ask you. And he doesn't call, address him teacher at the beginning. He does at the end, but he doesn't hear. The other guys all address Jesus as teacher at the front end. But anyway, comes up and he says, so what commandment is foremost of all? Jesus said the foremost is this. And, and it's a passage they're familiar with. Pious Jews would actually quote this twice a day. So Jesus goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and says this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And then what's interesting is Jesus doesn't just give the foremost. He gives a second one. The second is this, quoting from Leviticus 19. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So this guy is coming up. He's impressed with Jesus, but he is a scribe after all, so he's going to push Jesus just a little bit. So what do you think, Jesus? And Jesus immediately has the answer. And he goes back to the, what the Jews would call the Shema in, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, and this is what it says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And he ends up telling us two things about God. Number one, he's the only God. The Lord is one. There's not, there's not multiples. And they lived in a world where people were thinking there was gods everywhere. And no, not the Jews. The Jewish religion said, the basis of what we do is the fact that there's only one God to serve at the end of the day and worship. There's only one. And the beauty is, he's ours. So the God we know is the only God there is. Isn't that wonderful? Do you know if you know Christ as your Savior? The God you know personally is the only God there is. You don't have to worship anyone else's. Because they're not true. They're demons. They're false. It's, it's not right. It's wrong. You say, Christianity is exclusive. You got it. The message is exclusive. The offer for all is inclusive. But there is one God. And he is ours. And because he has graciously moved toward us and made us ours, made us his, that should change the way we live. So those who know him personally, the only true God, how are they supposed to live? Here it is. Love the Lord your God with 75% of your heart, half of your soul, three quarters of your mind, and much of your strength. 
Is that what he says? Now, he says, from the core of your soul to the outward expression, at every level, totally, completely, love God by showing allegiance to him and him alone. In every decision. You know, there's no wiggle room here. My heart is often the place where it talks about how I think and reason and desire and my emotions and all that stuff. Jesus says, like with all that, with all your emotions and everything you think, mentions the mind here too, everything, it's God-oriented. How about when I'm trying to make a decision? God-oriented. How about when I'm thinking about how I should respond to my wife? It's God-oriented. How about with my kids? It's God-oriented. How about at work? God-oriented. Everything I do, every area of strength I have, everything within me, it's always about God first. God, what will honor you? What shows allegiance to you? That's what I do. Jesus says, because he is ours, we are in relationship with the only one. With everything inside of you, with every decision, every day, at night, in the morning, doesn't matter. It's God, how do I honor you? Do you see? And then the second is like unto it, because if I really say God... I want you to be central in my life. There's nobody beside you. That will mean that I will move toward my neighbor for their good. And love your neighbor as yourself. Sometimes that's easy, isn't it? Sometimes it's easy to love my kids. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's easy to love my mate. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's easy to love my brother and sister in Christ. Sometimes it's not. And Jesus extends this in Matthew 5 by saying, you have heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say unto you what? Love them all. Do you mean my enemy is also my neighbor? Yep. This text doesn't give me any wiggle room at all. It actually frees me out of my incredible love to God to move toward other people and do for them what I would want them to do for me if I was in their place. I've often thought about this. In my home, what's it like living with Doug Finkbeiner if I was Sherry? What's it like living with Doug Finkbeiner if I'm one of the six kids in my home? Because I need to, I need to love them from their perspective. Isn't that what Jesus says? Treat others the way you would want to be treated if you were in their same situation. So what's it mean for me to love Sherry that way? What's it mean for me to love my children that way? All because at the end of the day, I have nothing to prove because I'm lost in the fact that I am loved of God. I'm in relationship with him. He is everything. Even if she's unkind to me or he's unkind to me, at the end of the day, it matters, it hurts, it's painful, but it doesn't matter at the end of the day, ultimately, does it? What matters is that I move toward them and express the same love to them that I'd want to receive if I was in their place. And I'm free to do that because I have nothing to prove. I don't have to get back from them. I just have to give to them because I'm already, I've already gotten more than I possibly could do anything with because I'm in Christ. And I want God to have everything. And that gets fleshed out in the way I treat people. I want you to take a moment and think. Who's hard to love in your life? If you don't have anybody on your list, um, you're not thinking. And I don't mean that they're enemies. They might be. They just may be just downright annoying people. That when you see them, you know, there's some people when you see them, you go like, oh. 
I'm, I'm saying, is it true or not? I mean, you just, there's just people in your life when your, your eyes kind of roll. Maybe not actually, but in your, they're rolling. You know, inside they're rolling. And this text is saying, the God who is for me because he's given me his son, the God who has made me his child, the only true God who gets everything. How can I love them the way I would want to be loved if I was in their place right now. Hmm. Do you think that would change our relationships? At home, at work, in our neighborhoods, with our family, in our churches. Folks, I think it would change everything. And so a question that was kind of given to kind of just say, but yeah, see if you're as smart as I am, Jesus, I'm a scribe. Jesus turns it around and says, you know, this is how my people live. They knew who they are in me. They love God with everything. And then they move back into all their relationships. And when those people come in, they think in their mind, how can I love them the way I would want to be loved if I was in their position? And I'm telling you, folks, That would change our lives. So based upon God's exclusivity, he is the only God. Love him above all else and love your neighbor as yourself. Let me just finish the text and be done here because I know I've gone gone a little bit too long probably. Um, Sorry about that. But not so sorry that I'm not going to finish the text. Okay, so notice how it finishes up. The, The scribe says in verse 32, right teacher... So he's listening, and when he hears Jesus finish, he's going like, that was a really good, that was a really good answer. <laughs> I mean, yeah, he answered the foremost one, and then he plugged in that other one, like, wow, that was, that was really good, right? Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one, and there is no one else beside him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one, the neighbor as yourself, is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently or wisely, depending upon how you translate that, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. It's a curious response that Jesus gives to this guy to me, isn't it? So the guy basically says, you're right. God's the only God. And we have to love him and love others. And, and you know, and I think this is fascinating. Jesus has just cleansed the temple and basically said, the whole temple process is flawed and problematic. All those sacrifices, all that stuff that's going on, it's all corrupted. And it seems like something is happening with this guy. And he's saying, you know, what you say, it is more important than sacrifices and, and offerings. Maybe, maybe there's something to who this Jesus is. I think that's what's going on in his heart. And Jesus says, you're not in the kingdom, pal. But if you stay on that trajectory, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Stay on course and you will realize, Jesus is saying, that I am the fulfillment of everything. And what I say is true at every level. And if that really goes deep into your heart, you who cannot love God by your own anyway will come to the one who will empower you and transform you and save you and make you the kind of person he wants you to be. So real quick, in light of eternity, live wisely in all of one's responsibilities and lovingly in all of one's relationships out of a submissive allegiance to our sovereign God. And I just want to ask your questions. They're not gotcha questions, okay? They're really not. How responsible are you to your God-ordained institutions? What kind of a citizen are you? What kind of a husband and wife and father are you? What kind of a child are you? What kind of a church member are you? What kind of a leader are you in the church? How certain are you of the glories of eternity? Because if you are, it'll change everything. 
How committed are you to the supremacy of God in everything that you do? And how passionate are you to love all of your neighbors and not be selective? When I sent this message title uh, over to Dave Mercer a couple days ago, because they can post it, I wrote down, so Dave, here's the sermon title from the passage, Gotcha. And he emailed me back, Gotcha. (laughs) Which made me chuckle. I thought that was a really brilliant response. But the way he was using Gotcha is different than the way I was using Gotcha. Because I, the way this, what they want to do is catch Jesus and embarrass him. What Dave was saying is, Doug, I understand what you want. And I'm going to go ahead and do it. Can you say that kind of gotcha to Jesus about this passage? When Jesus says, this is what I call my people to do. Those who truly know me as Lord and Savior. Jesus, gotcha. Because will you let his spirit do that work in your life? Let's pray. Father, we... We rejoice that in a passage that humanly speaking could potentially embarrass our blessed Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, only potentially. It's never going to happen. You use that moment not only to put people in their place, but to teach. To teach your people what it means to live before you. Father, for any that are here with us today that don't know you as Lord and Savior, it's not about them working to be a better citizen or better husband or love their neighbor. That's not the place to start, Lord, because they'll fail miserably. They need to come to Christ. They need to find forgiveness. They need to receive your spirit and begin to know what the transformed life is all about. Father, but for us as believers, forgive us for not living as you've called us to live. Forgive us, Father, for not depending upon your spirit or not being passionate about you and your ownership and sovereignty and your wonder and glory. Lord, may we be lost in you And then freed to move into our world and love others and respond wisely to the different stewardships that you call us to. And Father, for that, we will be eternally thankful. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.